Well, good morning, church family. We are still in this series called Encounters. And essentially what the series of Encounters is about is we're, we're taking a look at moments in the New Testament where Jesus shows up uh, and radically transforms and changes people's lives. In particular, we're looking at the book of Acts because it demonstrates to us what happens when God's people, the church, his body, are faithful to proclaim the gospel. And when they do that, things just happen. People's lives are changed. People's lives are transformed. And so today we're still digging into that, but we're going to do something a little different. We've been focusing on one specific story at a time. But today we're going to do a sort of speed round and look at three quick stories that all happen in the book of Acts in the same chapter. And it's like they're little snapshot pictures. And what we're going to try to do is look at these three quick snapshots and then take a step back and try and see if there's a larger or bigger picture that begins to emerge. And in doing so, I think something does emerge and what emerges is something incredibly relevant and important for the time that we are in. So let's dig in. The first snapshot is the picture of a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. And in Acts chapter 16, this is what's recorded. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul had said. Now, a couple, couple notes. The we in this, it says we went somewhere as Paul the Apostle and the author of the book of Acts is Luke. So they're going to a place they thought would be a place of prayer. And most likely what's happening historically is that we're, we're located in Philippi and the apostles are looking for maybe a synagogue or a place where Jewish people are gathering to pray. Now, historically at this time period, in order to establish a synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish males. And if you had 10 Jewish males, then you could officially kind of start a synagogue. So we don't know all the details, but it could be that Luke is sort of cluing us into the fact that there might not even be enough people to have a synagogue, or maybe there is, but these, these men aren't being faithful to start this synagogue. Nevertheless, there are women who gather together for prayer. One of these women is named Lydia. She's called a worshiper of God, something we encounter in the book of Acts. It's similar to the phrase God-fearer. It's someone who is kind of on the outside, who's looking at the God of Israel, and they see somebody there that they want to worship, that they do worship, but they haven't completely gone in 100%. And this woman certainly hasn't heard about Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. So Paul presents the gospel to her. The other information that we get is that she's a seller of purple goods. Now this is interesting because... It's not like something that would never occur, but it is rare in the ancient world to encounter a God-fearing woman who is also a sort of wealthy business owner. And Luke clues us into this, the author of Acts, by saying she's a seller of purple goods. We're going to see in a moment that she has her own household. Um, And so Lydia 
is a free woman. She's not a slave in the Roman Empire. She has her own household. She's in charge of her own business. She sells purple dye. There's two types of purple dye in this time period. One is a very expensive form and the other one's a cheaper form. But either way, she would have had a profitable business. Both, both types of dyes were sought after. So this first snapshot in Acts 16 is that of a free, wealthy woman who approaches God and she's respectful of the God of Israel and just because Paul is faithful in the moment, he preaches the gospel and something happens. It goes on and says, after hearing the message, she was baptized and her whole household as well. And she is just saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon it. So Lydia opens up her home. She's being hospitable. So she's using her wealth and her home to, to help the spread of the gospel. So snapshot one, Lydia, a wealthy female business owner encounters Jesus Christ and her life is changed. Snapshot number two is that of a demon-possessed slave girl. And Acts 16 records it like this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. First, first note. This young girl is in the exact opposite situation of Lydia. Lydia is a free businesswoman who has her own household, something rare. This girl has earthly masters and spiritual masters. She's possessed by a demon and she's also physically, in an earthly sense, slave to people who own her and use her to make money. So she's, she's in the, the exact opposite situation of Lydia. And you can picture this girl who's, who's a slave. She might actually look up to people like Lydia and say, I wish I had that life. Or she might look at those people and have so much jealousy, there's bitterness. Um, like, look at, look at these rich people. They just have servants and slaves and they don't care about us. All they do is use and abuse us to make money for themselves. We don't know exactly the thoughts that went in this young girl's mind, but we know that she's in a horrible situation. She's a slave and she's possessed by a demon. Now, one of the interesting things the Bible does is it gives you two ways of looking at situations like this. Um, and picture like two doors you can choose from depending upon the situation. There are people who say, they can predict the future or their fortune tellers or tarot card readers and you can go to them and pay money and they're going to give you some secret insight into your life. The Bible has a category and it will call it door number one. It says they're just fakes, phonies, and frauds. And in my opinion, 90% of the time, that's usually what's going on. When people say they can do fortune telling or see into the future, read these cards and know X, Y, Z, it's a bunch of fake frauds and phonies. They're, they're using tricks to fool you into to making profit. And the Bible has categories for that. The Bible also has categories, however, that say, in some circumstances, there is real supernatural evil. And people, through means that are forbidden in the scriptures, 
can sort of tap into that. And what the scripture is forbidding here is something that's being used by this girl and her slave owners to make money. Um, And so we don't know the exact details again, but at least in this passage, it appears as if this young girl isn't just a crook, but she is actually conjuring up some type of evil supernatural insight and her owners are exploiting that for profit. And she sees the apostles and the demon begins to cry out. The text goes on and says, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. All right. Now straight up. It's one of the weirder passages in the Bible. Um, And it's weird because you get this image that Paul passes this girl sort of every day and the demon cries out and Paul just kind of ignores it. And then one day Paul's annoyed and it's like, okay, now we're going to cast out a demon. And the text says he becomes greatly annoyed. And so he turned and said to the spirit, come out of her. So it is very, it's a strange text. It's a bizarre text. But because we don't have all the details, we we can't necessarily figure it all out. But I'll say this. Paul knows that whatever actions he takes, they can have tremendous consequence upon the young girl or them. I mean, Paul obviously wants all people to know Jesus Christ, to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But there are some actions that he might do that can put this girl in more harm than, than good. And so he might be strategizing. Whatever it is, at some point, before Paul's plan fully fleshes out or develops, he gets angry or annoyed at this spirit, this demon, and casts it out. And so after that, we can see that that's, you could see why he was maybe an, uh, avoiding that action until the right time, because chaos happens immediately after. Acts 16, 19. But when her owner saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. So now there's more context. You could see why maybe Paul was being careful in this situation. Now first note, the owners of this slave girl, they do not care about her. They don't care that she's been freed by this tormenting evil spirit. All they care about, the text says, is their hope for gain was lost. They lost the money. And once the money was gone, they get upset. They do not care for this girl. And so the people in the city bring a charge against Paul and, and, and the apostles of Jesus. And they say, they're teaching us to do things that are not in accordance with, with Roman ways. Now this is happening in a place called Philippi. All, all, all of these stories. And Philippi is a Roman colony. And so the people in charge of Philippi want to look good for Caesar. They want to make sure that 
man, we're obeying all the rules of Rome. We, we're, we're, happy citizens, we're happy to be a colony of Rome. We have some citizens who live here. We know not everyone's a citizen here, but we want to obey the rules of Rome. And so if you are going to get a crowd worked up to mistreat people, you don't say, oh, they, they casted out a demon or they preached some, some Jewish Messiah. You say they're teaching against the ways of Rome. And that's exactly what happens. And then they have orders to beat Paul and these followers of Jesus with rods. Now, you need to know this is not just you get a couple hits and it's gone. They are going to be tortured. They are going to be beat till they can't get up, till you are in severe agony. This is intended to break you. And so for the church and for the gospel, the first followers of Jesus suffer. This transitions us into meeting our third character, the third snapshot. And it's the Philippian jailer. And the story goes on and it says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, important details in the text. Paul is beaten. They're beaten with rods. They're in severe agony. And they tell this jailer to put them in a safe place. But notice what the jailer does. And we, it's hinted at the text. We can't be certain of it, but the, the hints are pretty strong. So they put these people in a safe place. But what the jailer does is he puts them in the inner prison, which is a technical term. It's the worst part of the prison. It's in the, the bottom region. It is, it is dark. It, the, the smell would have been horrific. Uh, disease and infection would spread there, especially if you have open wounds from being beaten with rods. Then it says the jailer puts their feet in stocks. Now, oftentimes, stocks are used just to keep people secure, but Roman stocks are also used to torture people. You put someone in an uncomfortable position and you lock them in that. Or picture being beaten with rods and then having your body put in an uncomfortable position after this beating. And it's meant to just increase the pain. Either way, the point is this. This jailer inflicts more suffering upon Paul and these ministers of the gospel. The jailer most likely uh, is a ex-Roman soldier. We know this from the historical records that many of the people who kept the, the, the jails and the jailers were just ex-military, ex-Roman soldiers. Again, Rome, uh, Philippi is a Roman colony, so Rome has some, some soldiers that are done fighting wars. Let's put them in our colonies to keep, to keep Rome in place and to give them some jobs that they can, they can work. So you have to picture, and we don't, we don't know with certainty, but just picture like a, an ex-Roman soldier. And Paul has been beaten, he's handed over, put into the worst part of the prison, and put into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So there's a miracle. There's a miracle. God has done something, some type of earthquake. We don't know, again, all the details. We're just getting little glimpses. But Paul and Silas, they, they, can, they can get out, man. 
They can, they're, they're free. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And so the Philippian jailer, maybe ex-Roman soldier, he thinks the prisoners have escaped. He knows that there's going to be a severe consequence to this. He might lose his life, but he would certainly bring shame upon his name and his family's name. He's overwhelmed with grief. He's going to take his life because he failed Rome on, on the job. But Paul's there. He says, stop. You don't do this. And in that moment, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And I don't think the jailer was saying, I know that you're, you believe in a Jewish Messiah, so tell me the, the right theology in this moment so that I can become one of these Christians like you. He's probably just saying like, what am I going to do? I'm in trouble. What must I do to be saved? But the answer that Paul gives is not just an answer of how to be saved in this moment, but the answer is how to be saved in the truest sense, the greatest danger that sits before the Philippian jailer. And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Three quick stories, three snapshots. The first one is a wealthy business owner, businesswoman named Lydia. The second is a poor, oppressed slave girl. The third one is this kind of ex-military Roman Philippian jailer. All have incredible stories by themselves. But if we take a step back, something else begins to emerge. Think about this for a moment. The first church in Philippi is at minimum composed of an ex-demon-possessed slave girl, a wealthy businesswoman, and a Roman soldier. And we know there would have been some other Christians there too. But this is what the first church in Philippi looks like. Now think about them coming together as a church in Philippi. There's not 50 churches in Philippi and you can just choose whatever denomination you want. These are the first Christians there. And so there might have been several house churches, but these Christians would have known each other. They would have got together for a meal at some point. Now picture that. The businesswoman. Ex-demon possessed girl. A Roman soldier. And throw in some, some other Jews and Gentiles into the picture. And they're all going to come together and worship Jesus. Now, do you understand the, the potential for like dynamite to explode? It's like if you took like 
a super conservative Republican and a super liberal Democrat, and you got an independent there, and you got a Green Party person, and you put them in, and you're going, now you must come together and learn what it looks like to worship Jesus. It's like, how do you do that? And I just used a simple, cheap example with politics. In the ancient world, it was much more loaded because people were killed over this stuff. If you were a Jewish man, you saw Roman soldiers crucify your people. And now you're going to sit down and worship the same Jesus. You're going to come together around a table. But that is precisely what Jesus does. Jesus takes enemies and turns them into friends. And he takes friends and turns them into family. And so the first Christians that composed the church in Philippi were from all different walks of life, with different opinions, with different backgrounds, with different pains, different hurts, different suffering, and they came together and had to learn what it was like to be the church. And that is precisely what church is all about. It is the gathering of God's people, the neither male nor female, Jew, Gentile, slave nor free. It is the gathering of God's people where we come together, we work out differences, and we center on the person and work of Jesus. Now at the beginning I said that the picture that emerges at the end of this will hopefully be extremely relevant to our current situation. You may be saying, okay, I, I get it. We're supposed to be unified in Jesus and we're supposed to work out stuff and, and be a family. Well, what does that have to do with the current situation? Okay. So, I don't know when shelter in place is gonna end, all right? I don't know when. Don't know when shelter in place is gonna end. I wish I did. Wish I did. But I know it will end. I know it will end. And I know there's gonna be like an easing up of restrictions. It's not gonna go from zero to 100 overnight. It's not gonna be like, Everything's on lockdown, and then next week, hey, everything's back to normal like it never happened. There's going to be easing of restrictions. And in this period, there are going to be some people who want to rush to, to meet and go back to normal the very next day. And there are going to be some people who say, hey, just because um, they're saying we can do certain things doesn't mean we should. We need to be responsible. We need to continue doing what, we've, we, what we do. And I know this because just, just like on social media alone, I know that the, the whole spectrum is represented in our church. So I, I know there's some of you who are sitting and you're listening and the, you, know, the, you would want me to say like, man, we're, we're breaking shelter in place rules tomorrow. We're going to open up the church and we're going to go back to normal and go full blast. This has been a big joke and da 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 da. And some of you, you're wired like that. Your temperament's like that. Your political leanings are like that. And some of you are on the opposite end. You're, you want to shelter in place uh, as long as possible and you have fear and anxiety and you want to look after uh, the vulnerable and you don't want to do anything that might contribute to any, anybody's suffering. And our church has the full spectrum of people. And all you have to do is go online and you know that you have friends who are like all across the board. So what I want to do is preemptively prepare us as a church. We as a church are going to do our best to follow the guidelines. We're going to do our best to be safe, to be cautious, to take every, every type of question and answer them and work through so we are obeying rules, being safe, not doing anything that might cause unneeded suffering to occur. But I know with certainty 
There are going to be some of you who will be upset that we're taking all of those precautions because we're overreacting to something that's being overblown. And I know that there's some of you who no matter how many steps we take are going to think we're not taking enough steps to be safe. And because everything is so loaded and polarized, there is going to be potential for disunity in the church. And what I want you to know is that you can be a good Christian and be over the shelter in place. And you can be a good Christian and say this shelter in place needs to continue. Because no one has the God's eye view to the situation. And some of you say, well, I've done my research. And and some of you on the other side, well, I've done my research. Look, it's not about who's right or who's done the most research. What we want to do as a church is prepare ourselves for when this ends to come together in unity. And so I want to preemptively tell everyone this. The first church was composed of people with all kinds of different viewpoints, but they found a way how to center on Jesus and make it work. And so we look to the future when we will be able to gather again. And when we do so, know that this church is going to be safe, cautious, and we'll do everything we can to do this right. But also, let's be forgiving to our fellow Christians who might not share the exact same viewpoints as us. We center on Jesus. We come together to worship his, the, the Son of God. And in doing so, the world will know who we belong to by our unity. So, Last week, Sam introduced um, this practice that we're going to end every series with for the rest of the shelter-in-place time. We're going to close every sermon by reading, reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Um, And there's a line that I want to focus on, and it's the line about forgiving us of sins as we forgive others. As we come out of this, we are going to need to be a forgiving people, to be a patient people. There are going to be people who, when you, we come out, who are going to want to hug you right away, and there's going to be people who are going to be offended if you want to hug them because you're a hugger. Let's love each other. Bear each other's burdens. We've been forgiven. Extend that grace to others. And so, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.